Tuesday, August 4th. Good Lord, it's already August. And you're back with another episode of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson, joined as always by uh, a, a seriously social distancing at the undisclosed location, Tom Stevens. Tom, how are you doing, How's buddy? it going, Trey? <laughs> you, uh, are are you, you nice and relaxed? The... I'm, living, I'm living the dream. <laughs> Out from under the, under the oppressive thumb of the, uh, of the uh, anti-COVID regime here in the Commonwealth. Uh, I am. All I need is some of that pandemic money to start coming in. <laughs> there you go. And uh, we are joined today by our, our guest, uh, the State Center for the 16th District. That's Taylor Adair. Uh, that, 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 there's, there's a lot to name here, Trey. I got there's a whole seven, bunch. So, yeah. Well, we got, we got, uh, we'll let Max Wise name them all, Senator Wise. So, Nate, Nate, rattle them off for us. Trey, first of all, thank you and Tom for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. But we've got the 16th District, Taylor, Adair, Russell, Cumberland, Clinton, Wayne, and Macquarie counties. It's a lot of territory. It is a lot. You've got four central time zones, three eastern time zones. So my legislative aide in Frankfurt is constantly asking me what is what when she's having to schedule <laughs> appointments within the district. But uh, Great area to represent if you're into any type of recreational activities, fishing, outdoors. I've probably got one of the best Senate districts to be able to come visit Green River Lake, Lake Cumberland, Delhalla, and all areas in between. What's what's the population look like down there over the last 10 years? Do you think your is your district going to stay about the same? Any chance to get yeah. bigger? We've actually probably maintained. Uh, you know, we've got some areas down here that have probably experienced a little bit of growth and probably some that have lost some, so it probably is going to equal itself out. If you look to the north, I consider you know Taylor and Adair and Russell to probably have experienced a little more growth over the last few years of having Campbellsville University, Lindsey Wilson College, Amazon.com Distribution Center, uh, and also some of the uh, the regional hospitals uh, along those areas. But you know even down in, in areas like you know Clinton and, and Wayne, they probably have stayed about the same and have not lost a whole lot of people. So uh, even a lot of the young people who have gone off to, to school or vocational schools have came back to the region, which is, has been good to see. You know, I've, I've already got people that are looking at, at, at different races, both House and Senate, calling me, asking for advice. And I, I keep telling them, you just need to go to Frankfurt and make friends with anybody who might have any input on the redistricting process because you don't know, <laughs> you don't know where, where your seat will end up at. <laughs> That is absolutely the truth, and I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how that works because that was done before I entered into the legislature, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the process. Well, people people forget that we flipped the House by, well, we, we flipped 18 seats, lost one, so a 17-seat swing in, in 2016. We did that in seats that were drawn by Greg Stumbo specifically to maintain a Democrat majority. So it'll be interesting, even if we just draw fair lot, uh, you know, fair, fair districts, uh, you know, I, there's a chance our numbers could go up in 22 just, just because of, of having different lines. You know, and I know you and Tom both have really looked at the numbers and things, but it's going to be, you know, for far West Kentucky and then parts of over in Appalachia to see what those numbers are going to look like. But 
it would seem to me that you're going straight north to straight south, that's probably going to be, you know, a lot of the areas that have remained the same in terms of population numbers. But if you get overlooking at Fulton County, some of those areas are far west. That's what I'm very interested to see what those numbers will be like. Yeah, what I'm hearing is you're, you're probably going to see a Senate district go up to the Louisville suburbs and a Senate district go down to the Lexington suburbs, uh, one from the east, one from the west. And the House will have a kind of similar – Similar movement, uh, you know, more numbers, obviously, because they have more seats. But, you know, I, I keep saying that the, the, only, the only thing I can tell you for sure is the old, you cannot start the house redistricting until you combine uh, uh, Pike and Letcher. It's, it, it makes too much sense, which is why Chris Harris is running for, for the, for the yep, judge down there. Um, yep. but yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the only thing I can say for sure that's going to happen in redistricting. Everything else, you, you never know what's, what's going to pop out. I'm just really surprised to hear from you guys the suggestion that politics has anything to do with the redistricting process. <laughs> to, the, to the victor go the spoils, Tom. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Senator, how many how many votes do you own? How many what? I'm sorry. Votes. I mean, votes surely, is there like a minimum? You know what I did at one time, it was years ago, I had a, uh, a houseboat that I actually my in-laws and, and we shared. Uh, but when we built a house and we put a pool in the back, uh, it's kind of hard to have a, be a boat owner and a pool owner and also a golfer. Uh, I would say for those three <laughs> things to all work together, my golf game's terrible. So you can see where I started to trend was more towards the water. Uh, but then having the uh, the pool has been very handy to take about 10 steps off of my back porch and, and be right there. So uh, it's it's now my best advice to be the friend of the boat owner, not yes. be the boat owner yourself. Yes, that's, uh, that's what everybody always tells me. It's far better to have a friend that owns a boat than to own one. I would say I, I would say the same thing for the pool, though, by the way, just knowing how much time and effort I put into and money I put into chemicals and skimming and cleaning and yep. getting water tested. Uh, it's never ending. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into some news items here because it's uh, we took a little hiatus last week. Um, I, we family, our family went down to Asheville for the week and did some hiking, uh, get the kids away for a little bit, hang out in someplace different than than the house. Uh, and uh, last week, Tom, there was several big news items on the unemployment uh, insurance front. Another another data breach, and uh, we had a little bit of testimony in the General Assembly. Yeah, just another great week for the uh, Bashir administration as they navigate the uh, self-created unemployment crisis. You know, it's just, it's, it, it, it boggles the mind that like, what were these people thinking? <laughs> With this, like, it, they could clearly, it's, it's like they saw it on fire and just kind of stood around and said, ah, well, ah, thing's on fire. Huh. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm going to jump in there also yeah. of being as a member of that committee when, uh, maybe mispronouncing the name Muncie McNamara yeah. uh, for the testimony that was held. I did that remotely. I spoke that day to the Kentucky Superintendents Association uh, at their uh, annual conference at the Galt House. But listening to the testimony, and I, I was just blab flabbergasted that there was not communication before the decision was made to basically shut down the state that we didn't bring in the deputy secretary and the ones who oversaw the unemployment issue to ask for advice guidance or just to give a heads up and to see what's become of this i mean it's a debacle and, and you all are seeing it everyone else has seen it play out but i will tell you as legislators there's not a day goes by that i don't have at least five to ten people 
continuing to say, can you get me help? Can we sit some relief in this situation? Um, and I don't, I don't know when the end is going to be there. Uh, and so we're going to continue to, to be, you know, inundated with these emails and constituents reaching out, which is absolutely uncalled for. Senator, we've got, there, there are, according to the state's own numbers, there's 4,900 unresolved cases from March. March, it's August. Yep. There's 4,900 unresolved cases in March. I, it's, and I also love how when asked about why Kentucky was paying so much more per claim to Ernst & Young than, than Colorado did, the, 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 the basically the, the governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky and his, and his representatives essentially said our people aren't as skilled as the people in Colorado because the people in Colorado, I guess, gave Ernst & Young just all the, the mass of the easy ones to take care of, and the people in the department took care of the more difficult cases. In this state, the reason that they, that they gave for why we're paying more is because Ernst & Young was handling the more difficult cases. Like, he basically just said these people aren't very good at their jobs, so we had to bring Ernst yep. & Young in. Like, it's, you know, and McNamara talked about how low the, the uh, morale over at that department is right now. And, and, you know, when you get the governor saying stuff like that, yeah, I totally see it being low. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And, and you know, once again, it's, it's not the fault of even our LRC staffers that are trying to help on this. I mean, we basically had to turn this over to constituent services. And just say, all right, we're getting so many calls, so many, you know, uh, messages, emails that are flooding in. And uh, it, it's just absolutely amazing to see this. I think it's a great example of people talk about, let's let government run healthcare. No, look at this, the way this has been handled. Why would you want government to be able to handle situations like this? And this whole thing, once again, this all goes back to the Bashir administration operating in a razor thin silo. And yep. not even not even wanting to involve other parts of their own administration. That there are so few people in the room making these decisions that you can't possibly have a good decision made on every on every action item. So four years ago, we had an issue very early in the Bevin administration where we were unable to retask workers from one cabinet agency to another. And it involved an issue with the Department of Education and, and some other things. And we wanted to be able to surge resources in from other cabinets. And one of the things we determined was that there were issues within state service where you couldn't take somebody that was, you know, we have the classification system. So let's say you had like a highway equipment worker. We couldn't, in, a, in an emergency, uh, you know, flex those resources into some other thing. And so we took a look at it. And we were thinking about it really more from the standpoint of, um, you know, say a say a significant natural disaster. You have the the new Madrid fault. You know, some, something along those lines. So we did an administrative rule change that allows you to move um, employees from basically any cabinet anywhere else in state government to another agency. For I don't remember if it's a thirty day period, six weeks period, something like that. But it's something that can be renewed for honestly, kind of issues just like this. So literally, you could right now these folks that are at home. You know, uh, you know, skilled white collar folks, be they attorneys, be they accountants, be they auditors, whatever else, you can surge those into other cabinets. It, the, the tools are there. So, and that was a tool that wasn't there four years ago. I mean, that, that's a new, that's another gift that we left the Bashir administration. I'm disappointed to see them, you know, kind of going back to the, um, you know, let's sole source some group that we're going to come in. We're not going to pay any attention to what the bill is. It's finally going to be due from Ernst & Young. It's too bad. Yep. Well, let's let's talk about uh, another solution that's being offered here, Tom. I, I sent you this the other day. 
uh, State Rep State Representative Terry Clark from up in uh, Ashland tweeted that she has pre-filed a bill to mandate, I'm just reading straight off her Twitter, to mandate public employment offices be located in specific locations. This is just such a Democrat solution to, to a problem. It's like, well, we have this big problem that let's, let's I'll get to the root of the problem in a, in a minute, but the, the root of the problem is not like we don't have enough unemployment locations in specific areas. And it's such a Democrat idea, like, all right, well, let's, let's, uh, to solve this problem, let's go ahead and buy code, which means, you know, you, you, by statute, you can't just, like, go change it in five years when there's population change. You have to change the law. She wants to write into law where the unemployment offices should be located. It's so, it's so stupid. It is such a, a, a mallet to kill a fly solution to this problem. One of the reasons that there are fewer unemployment offices now is that four years ago, three years ago, two years as recently as you know six months ago, Kentucky had incredibly low unemployment numbers. And we, whatever your whatever your view is on government, government has been getting smaller in this state going back over the last twenty years, and it's going to have to continue to get smaller because we don't have the resources to pay, especially under the circumstances Kentucky finds itself in with the number of people that are going to be drawing on unemployment, probably for a significant amount of time. Um, well, you got you to pick and choose. And that wasn't a problem then. That's why we pulled those resources away. And by the way, gave them the ability to flex and come up with other ways to do it thoughtfully, which I, they haven't right. been able to do. I will say one thing that frustrates me sometimes, Senator, about our party is, you know, we're the party of small government, you know, do more with less, yada, yada, yada. But oftentimes we're, we're very good at the front end part of that, you know, strengthening the size of government, but we were or often not as good at the back end of it, which is taking advantage of the technology that, that exists to do the job that was there and to do it to, to, to do it more efficiently so you can trick the size of government. You know, we finally got KREF some new computers. They're still not backed and right, but you know, we we put money into that and, and this whole unemployment situation, this is not a problem of we close too many offices. This is not a problem. We don't have enough we don't have enough people. You can go out and hire five hundred people, a thousand people. We're working on like tube computers from 1960 to freaking process these things. You They're know? Commodore 64s. Yeah, <laughs> it's the Amiga. You know, we, we we you have to have the technology to do it, and you know, mandating that we're going to have locations here and there. None of that matters. That's a waste of money. You just it's it's not sexy. Voter voters don't care about it. They might not even like it. Um, you know, but investing money in the back-end technology in these things it's, it's pretty much a one-time expense just upgrade their computers once every 10 years and and you can do more with less and we just you know and th this is this is on the the steve Bashir administration as much as it's on republicans we just you know we need to get better at where we shrink things uh investing the money in the back-end technology to be able to do the same job with the fewer number of people that we've we've allotted you're exactly right. And I think both of you all know my occupation before I got into the legislature was working for the federal government with the, the FBI. My first day on the job in the Bureau, I'll never forget the computer system that we were given then. This was right after 9-11-2002 was still the old shift F7, shift F9. You could not, you could not send a document. You could not send a document from one agency to another. They just were going through about 2003 what they called virtual case file to be able to send something from one field office to another. So it was still using fax machines. It was still sending through the mail service. And this is the same thing we're seeing here with unemployment, a cobalt type system 
And you're right, Trey. I mean, there's a lot of blame we can pass on this, but instead of creating more government, update the systems. I mean, look where money should be spent. And, uh, you know, a lot of it could be, I will say, a resistance to change with government workers just being comfortable with what they had, the system that they were on. But this ha is a problem and it's got to be fixed because when you hire new workers, new college graduates, new high school graduates that are used to certain systems, and then you give them a dinosaur to work with, which is a tablet and a stone, that is not the way to do things. And, and, and remember, this, like we said, this is not a Bevan problem. This is, this is not right. a, a Steve Bashir. You know, Steve Bashir spent eight years bragging about how he'd shrunk, he'd shrunk the size of government. So, you know, that plays well for voters, regardless of what party you're in. You know, this is just, it's just a failure of, of the system to, to do. It's, it's a two-step. You shrink the size, but you also have to provide the same level of service, which you can do easily through technology. We just have to purchase the technology. That's right. Well, un unemployment is designed to deal with people that have lost employment. It's not designed to deal with situations with things like independent contractors. Yeah. In fact, the system is designed to catch people that could be considered independent contractors that haven't paid into that system. They're trying to draw benefits off of it. So shocking when they see that there's a hiccup in it because without checking on it, they open the floodgates to literally tens of thousands of people that are trying to get in there. And now the system catching. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on from the unemployment mess to something a little bit more entertaining. Uh, new morning consult poll out this morning. Senator McConnell <laughs> uh, showing a 17 point lead over Amy McGrath at the moment. Uh, they they polled uh, morning consult polled uh, the presidential race has it at uh, 59.35 for uh, President Trump and the uh, the Senate race at 53.36 with six percent uh, someone else and six percent undecided. In the in the Senate race, you know, the, what, what was amazing to me, guys, is they pulled four races. They pulled Alabama, Kentucky, South Carolina, Texas. They got Alabama being, I mean, write it off. It's that that one's flipping back to Republican, which we thought it would, with with the, the old football coach from Auburn, Tommy Tuberville. Um, but uh, out of those four races, Amy McGrath was the only one who was below eighty percent of her own party support, and Senator McConnell was getting twelve percent uh, of Democrat votes which is double what any other candidate polled is getting from, from Democrats, which just tells you how much Democrats don't like Amy McGrath. I mean, we do it, we do, we do it in the primary, but man, it's just, it, it's a, whew, not looking good for, for Amy McGrath. No, and, and, you know, we just saw over the weekend, you know, where we all right now, we're missing Fancy Farm. We, we love Fancy Farm and everything that it brings to it. And just the gaps that she continues to step in and to make comments. Uh, you know, I, I think that if, if I'm a, a Vegas gambler and I look at that race, I think the, you know, the margins is going to continue to increase in terms of getting wider and wider away from her because th that base is not going to rally. I, I don't see it. I don't know why you can unite it. I don't think it can be done. Now, I think hypothetically the interesting thing to look at is what would that poll look like if it was Charles Booker? You know, where, where would we be today? And, Trey, you know this, and, Tom, you probably study it, you know, that was that's a hypothetical I would like to say. You know, what would you know just for conversation? Where do you guys think if it was Booker, where would it be at? Oh, it'd be it'd be as wide, if not wider. I, I think that the Democrats just have they have a problem in the rural areas of the state. I I talked to a reporter yesterday about this. Uh, he's asking me why I think that is that, that the president hasn't really lost support uh, in, in Kentucky, where where he has a lot of other states. And I said, you know, this state has just, the state's gone so far red that, you know, they don't, used to, you, you could 
you could talk to Democrats in rural areas, and they and they they'd say they're going to vote Democrat because you know Blue Dogs still had some influence in D.C. and it, you know the, it, it, but now that party is entirely identified with the coasts, with California, with New York, with 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 the liberal more liberal areas of the country, and it's just once you get out of Louisville and Lexington, it's hard for those people to come back to the Democratic Party, whether whether it's McGrath or Booker. I think McGrath exacerbates the problem because there's just, there's nothing authentic about her. There's nothing exciting about her. Um, you know, her, her presentation is so poor. She makes constant gaffes. You know, Booker might have gotten a little bit closer in this one because he does have some excitement and some, and some genuineness when he speaks. But I think, you know, it's going to be a while for the Democrats in the wilderness until they can figure out a way to, to, to make inroads in these rural areas of the state that, through no fault, by the way, of, Kentucky, of the Kentucky Democrats, it's, you know, when you turn on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, pick up the New York Times, read Yahoo News, you're not reading about Blue Dog Democrats and, and pe- people like that I'm friends with, like Ray Jones and Dan Mosley. You know, you're not reading about those guys. You're reading about AOC and, and the squad and Pelosi, and that's what rank and file voters, people far less interested in politics, people like us, and people listen to this podcast, that's what those regular people identify with the Democratic Party now. They, they, they don't identify it with, you know, with, 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 Ray, with Ray Jones or Dan Mosley. They're, they're identifying Pelosi, and that's keeping them away from McGrath and Booker. Could not agree more. Yep. Um, moving down the list of the news items here. Oh, uh, by the way, I just want to say something real quick. The, the fancy firm thing, good Lord. <laughs> you know, and, and the KDP tried to argue with me on Twitter. Well, she's out in West Kentucky. Where's Senator McConnell? I said, well, Senator McConnell's not in my backyard. So beyond that, I can't really comment. But, so you know. Here's the secure remote location. This this weekend, I may have gotten a, a text message from uh, the McGrath campaign, like a, a worker, you know, those, those poll, how he got my number, I have no idea, but he was, he was doing one of those like sort of push things where like, Hey, you know, who do you support? What do you do? So that became like my Saturday afternoon activity where we texted back and forth literally the entire day. <laughs> the, I, was, I was very, I was very polite about it because I know it's just, you know, some, somebody that's sitting there and I, I appreciate the fact that they care about it. And, and you know, they just so far off, so far out of line. Uh, I, I, I felt bad for him. I, I refused. I was going to put some of it online, but then I genuinely felt bad, and I just I couldn't do it. KDP's lists are terrible. I don't know where they're getting lists from, but their lists are terrible. Like they they got <laughs> they're calling four out of four the hardest of ours. Like and, and half the time they don't even have the right names. They're just, I don't know where they're getting their lists from, but man, they're bad. <laughs> I kind of wondered, like, why would you waste time with me? It's they just they whatever vendor they're buying cell numbers from, they 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 they're getting ripped off. They got they got some bad lists. Uh, yeah. At know. first, I thought it might be you trying to troll me. To be honest, Greg. Well, I mean, I do have multiple. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do have all my burner accounts, you know. So. All right. <laughs> um, I guess we'll, we'll we'll get into a, a COVID update here, and you know, I guess we'll start with a. Uh, Every, everyone who's uh, on this on this podcast and has never been affected by COVID, raise your hand. Senator, keep your hand down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you have on a person who has 
who has gone through COVID and survived COVID, just like the 99.98% that's out there. So, get, give, so us, give us your experience kind of from, from when, when you felt it coming on, um, you know, what kind of clued you off that you need to get tested and kind of what it was like, you know, having it. You know, and, and I appreciate that because I think those of us that have had it and have gone through it, uh, we need to be open and transparent so others can know, you know, what the symptoms are and what it's like. The interesting thing I will say is it felt like to me the flu. I, I truly felt like I was starting to get the flu. It came on. Uh, I got tested on July 10th, which was a Friday. That Wednesday and Thursday, I started to get a little bit of some symptoms. Friday, uh, it was probably in the evening, started to get a really bad headache. Uh, went to bed that night, took a couple to leave. Next morning, I got up, was feeling fine. But by Thursday afternoon, you know, they always say that sometimes when the sun goes down, that sometimes you can start to feel worse if you have something. So that Thursday the night, uh, I felt really fatigued. I felt run down. Uh, started to get some aches all through my body, especially joints, fingers, neck those type of symptoms that came on. And uh, I felt like it's a summer flu. I really felt that way. That night, uh, I got the chills, uh, started to, to, to experience, you know, a lot of, of those symptoms. Sometimes you get through the evening, the night sweats. I never had a fever at all. I never felt like I was just a over 100 degrees. But that's one thing about this is many times, everybody's saying check temperatures of everybody, let's do this. Fever's not a big thing for most of this. I mean, it may be a low-grade fever for some, but it's this not. Is like a, this is a weird high. disease, man. Like, the yep. everybody is experiencing it differently. Yeah, and, and here's the weirdest thing is no one in my immediate family got it. Uh, the, the woman that I sleep with, my wife, did not get it. My kids in our house, we're all together, did not get this. My um, parents who I'd had dinner with that week before at their house didn't get any symptoms. So unless they've had this before, unless this had came back right, you know, before everything, um, so it was an interesting uh, to go through it. Uh, the self-isolation uh, is once you get it, uh, you know, having to be in one section of the house, the family's in the other section. Um, you know, you can get through it by not showing fever or symptoms for three plus days and get through in about 10 days is the earliest you can get out of the, the quarantine or the isolation. Uh, so mine, 12 to 18 hours of symptoms probably for the most part. The most I took, two Mucinex, and like I said, maybe a handful of uh, Advil or Aleve throughout the entire process. That's all I had. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I've got another friend uh, who's actually been a past guest on the podcast before who had it, and he, he said he just he felt like all of a sudden like he was sitting around the house, went to get up out of a chair, and it's like he couldn't lift his own arm up, like wow. just just wham, like he like like a wall hit him. Just felt fine, felt fine. I can't get up out of this chair like that level of fatigue and just kind of yeah. kind of malaise. Uh, it what malaise? That's a great way to describe it. You know, it, but it's I read so many things about it. You know, some people have you know vomiting or nauseous or they those type. I never had that, but I think it just affects all of us differently. I know it's highly contagious. I'm not going to downplay it. I want everyone to be safe. Hopefully, those that have immunocompromised situations, uh, they don't get it. But I also believe by getting through it. We have to also function as a society. We have to manage this the best way possible, uh, and we got to get through it as we go forward as a society. Well, you know, that's where Tom, Tom and I uh, on the podcast talk about a lot of times. We're both big advocates of, of, of mask wearing, and I, I talk, was talking to the Courier Journal one day, and I think actually part of this quote ended up in the story about 
kind of Senator McConnell being pro-mask and then Daniel Cameron suing the, the, the governor on some of the, the regulations. And what I said was, you know, as conservatives, we, we believe that people left to their own devices will, will end up doing the right thing. That's why we believe a lot of welfare stuff can be done through charitable organizations because people will, will out of, out of you know, the goodness of their hearts and belief in society do the right thing. You know, and I hate, I hate that they're, they were getting to the point where we have having to discuss mandates because I don't like mandates. And I don't, you know, I don't right. think the mass, the mass mandate, I think probably results in more pushback than anything else. I wish people would just understand like, Hey, we can do the right thing for a couple of months, wear some masks. And, you know, it, it, it may get us through it. It may not, but it don't cost nothing. You know, it's, <laughs> you're not giving yeah. anything up to do it. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, uh, as we look to reopen schools and we've got so many things and, uh, you know, speaking of the superintendents that, that I did the other day, you know, their biggest concern is just they're, they're waiting for guidelines. They're yeah. waiting for direction. And I think that's been their biggest frustration. You know, we, we are a party of local control, but all of a sudden now you've got local control at its finest with schools and school boards and, and superintendents trying to make the best decision. There's no metrics. You know, public health can't come out and they really can't say. Uh, does a county have to be plus or minus, you know, 5% with positive cases? They don't know. And so everyone right now in terms of the decision making that's happening are just kind of winging it. And I know the governor said, let's push the third week for reopening schools. Uh, some schools are going to do a hybrid model. I will speak for my kids uh, at the Taylor County Public School System. They're full, in, uh, full speed ahead for in-person but there's also an online capability for those that don't want to. Our survey that went out to our families was about 80% wanted in-person, 20% for virtual. So, you know, but every district's different, and we all know that. Well, people, people, I think, forget sometimes, because it seems like this thing's been around forever. We've been going through this quarantine forever. People forget that this disease didn't exist, in our, to our knowledge, before, like, December. And so when we talk about like, well, this is what we're going to do. You know, if, if there's a flu outbreak at Taylor County Public Schools, there's a, we know, we know how to handle that because we know what it's going to do. We know where it's going to go. We know, we know the procedures to take. We're still learning things about this thing. I, I read an article the other day uh, by one of the scientists who basically helped eradicate smallpox. And he said, we actually, he said, we know more about this disease now than we did three months ago. And we actually have more questions and more unknowns about it than we did three months ago. Because every time that we, we turn over a stone on this thing, it, it reacts and acts different than any other virus that we've ever really come across. And, you know, it's, it's some people attacks their lungs, some of it attacks their nervous system, some of it attacks their, their heart. It, it's, you know, we don't have that playbook like we have with a flu outbreak or a measles outbreak or something like that because it's it, it is a disease that you know as, as far as being on our radar is like eight months old and people i think sometimes people have to you know i'm not saying like give governor Bashir the health department's everybody the benefit of the doubt but you got sometimes take a step back and remember nobody knows what the hell they're doing with this we're we're, we're making we're making best guess assumptions and it's going to change from week to week, you know? Yeah. In February, they said, well, don't wear masks. And now they're saying, wear masks. Well, that's because we learned more about it. And you know, we're going to continue to learn more about it. And hopefully we'll get to a point where our understanding is solid enough to where we can, we can make good calls. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and I Trey, think we want to get out in front of this. What's that? Tom. Go ahead, Tom. Tom? Oh, no. I, go ahead, Senator. My, my stuff is not very good. No, I, I, I had an idea about a uh, 
Kentucky Politics Weekly um, uh, eye care section, since I guess that face masks are going to be our, our new new need. You're breaking up a little bit there, Tom. You know, uh, now, Senator, I will say this. You know, we talked about this in the podcast with a couple of the rural county judges um, uh, back a couple months ago, and I, I'd actually been saying all along that the smart decision would be when we reopen this thing to say flat out, hey, we're going to reopen. It's probably a 50-50 shot, if not better than even, that we're going to have to close this thing back down. Like, we, sh we should have – they should have been honest with the public all along and said, we're going to open this thing up, but once people start – moving from the rural areas to the urban areas and vice versa, we're going to see, you know, pockets break out in places like Bell County and, you know, Harlan and, and you know, Southeast, South Central and the West. We're, we're, we're going to see it. That's exactly what's happened. Um, and I, I feel like there's a, there's a communication issue and this, and this goes beyond the governor and goes on to pretty much every other governor, the president, everybody, you know, it, the statements that are made are, are so kind of, concrete concrete seeming like you know we're, this is what we're going to do well it's what we're going to do right now <laughs> i agree yeah you're, you're you're spot on trey and it is and you know i've talked to my superintendent and those within my district and you know they're they're all just kind of right now knowing that's going to happen you know uh somebody that first day of school there's going to be a positive test after that first day of school it's just because somebody's already had it or that they're going to test and it's going to show up. And, you know, the way I look at it is for a workforce standpoint, uh, for a society standpoint, if we can continue, though, to function as well as possible, I hope we can continue to do that. But once again, once it runs rampant and all of a sudden, you know, teachers and everyone else, I mean, I understand the causality that could come with it. But, um, you know, we're all in it. And we're just kind of trying to manage the best that we can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then also, and then we're not even looking at also this from the, the college aspect. You know, I, I teach at the University of Kentucky uh, where they're testing students right now that are coming back onto campus. And, uh, you know, we're, we're discussing how hard it is to control it within our own home environments. But imagine the dormitory, the frats, the sororities, the apartments and what that's going to be like. Oh, it's impossible. And, and, you know, my issue all along, especially with, with ha having a, a someone going in the first grade, uh, as, as a child, you know, the educational needs of a first grader or a fourth grader are vastly different than the educational needs of a high schooler. And the fact that they're making, that the districts are, are, are making a unilateral decision for all levels of school in applying the same solution is a little, it's a little concerning because they're just, they're not, they're not all the same. You know, when you're in first, second, third grade, you're learning how to learn. You're not learning stuff necessarily. You're learning how to learn, and you just can't do that online. And, and it's not going to work in TI. And the other thing, Trey, I will say for those elementary school kids, it's about relationships with the teacher. And the first few weeks social of the school year, yeah, they they got to know their teacher. They've got to. I mean, I, and I know teachers that are dying to get back in the classroom for that purpose. They want to be able to you know, embrace that child, get to know that child. And it's so hard to do if it's just done through NTI or virtual. And I understand everybody's trying to do the best they can, but you're spot on. My high school daughter, who'll be a senior, and my other kids who are middle school and high school, they can do a Google Hangout. They can do chats. They can do those type of things virtually. But you're talking first, second, third graders, totally different story. Well, let's, let's stay in education for a moment and uh, talk about the digital divide. 
had had a had a legislative hearing yesterday. I think where you were uh, you were involved with the uh, former education commissioner Wayne Lewis and uh, Peter Hilly talking about uh, how to kind of bridge that digital divide and and, and get uh, get some internet access out to some of the areas of the state that are that are lacking. Yeah, we had a great conversation yesterday, and, and and this is the problem. You know, if we're looking to do virtual education again, uh, you know, my Senate district, I can speak for them. I've got some counties have about 70% connectivity uh, and accessibility, and I've got other parts of the district that have 90 to 100%. So, uh, just in in my geographic area of about 70 to 80 miles, you can see a huge difference from county to county of how this is. You know, we we've got to be better at this, uh, and I think even former Commissioner Lewis spoke about this is almost like electricity. You know, we we've got to allow everyone to have the ability to to jump on. Uh, we know the issues with Kentucky Wired of what's been there in the past, and and, and still not able to to get that all the rings connected, and even that last mile that that's not going to happen unless you have also your co-ops involved in the private sector as well to be a part of it that they can link on and they can provide the capability for, for all the people. Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think everybody's in agreement that it's got to be done. You know, I, I, I'm concerned that there's, there's uh, you know, the, the, the air is kind of spoilt for it with the way the Kentucky Wired kind of came into existence and, and, and all the, the issues, both technical and political, that are involved in that. You know, I'm hoping that that doesn't set us back timeline wise, but, you know, it, it needs to get done, but also needs to get done in, in a in the right way that doesn't burden taxpayers with billions upon billions of dollars in debt. That's correct. And I think also and I mentioned this uh, yesterday when I was on that call, we, we have to also think about what the private sector can do to help schools out as well. You know, if it's uh, donations for Chromebooks, if it's uh, Wi-Fi hotspots, anything like that that can happen, because you know, we're having students when we had to pivot because of, 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 of the pandemic that they don't have Wi-Fi at their homes. They were going to McDonald's. Uh, they were having to be in parking lots outside of the schools uh, to be able to hook up to Wi-Fi. So we've got to do better at this uh, because education, just like a lot of different areas, are going to completely change for the future. And we've got to make sure we have that accessibility. And, you know, here's the good news. When you talk about technology like this, you know, as we, we, as we start to get 5G more integrated, you know, my, my hope is technology will take care of a lot of this. I mean, you know, we can get to a point, I can see a point within the next four to five years where it's, we basically have universal Wi-Fi across the entire country with just a series of 5G towers. You know, we're, we're, we're going to get there. It's just how do we bridge the gap from, from one point to the next? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. And I don't know for many areas, it is difficult just because of the geographic terrain that we have. But uh, I'm like you. I, I think that that's going to be a big push. And a lot of this is going to come from our federal delegates of, of what we can get done in Congress that can be providing funding as it gets out to school districts, especially as it relates to uh, of, of accessibility. Yeah, and I think especially when you get down in areas like East Kentucky and parts of West Kentucky, you know, this, this should not be a, a state issue because you, you're going to have to have a, a holistic geographic approach. You know, if, you, yep. if you're, if you're trying to do it, if you're trying to do it like in Letcher County and then you stop at the Virginia, Tennessee line, that, like that does, that's wasting everybody's money. You know, yep. I think I'm with you. federal government needs to run herd. It's going to save, save money, get it done faster, get it done more efficiently. Um, you know, I, I haven't heard much about Kentucky wired of, of late, I guess the pandemic being a huge driving factor on it. What is the, the latest status as far as connecting the rings and, 
you know, from, from everything that, that I was hearing from the conversation yesterday is that, you know, the, the rings are, are pretty much on, on pace right now. It's going to be just trying to get finish the last miles, as, as that's what they were referring to. Um, but the, in terms of getting into some of these smaller communities, I think those are in the urban areas and even some of your larger, smaller cities, per se, in Kentucky, I think are going to be fine. It's just trying to get that last mile into some of the very rural areas of the state is going to be the, the the huge impact but it's trying to i think work with some of these electric co-ops that are out there that are already providing just allowing them the the ability to hook on and be connected as well to it yeah ab absolutely um well that's kind of the major news stories we've got for the week i want to get to a couple smaller ones through here so, some of them are going to be more uh, regional in interest but uh i want to run through a couple things i guess first one uh i think we we all want to want to say congratulations to our attorney general daniel cameron he got married over the weekend congrats daniel uh obviously he's got a big big decision coming up you know the courier journal's done something interesting they seem to be laying the groundwork to try to calm people in the fact that the charges in this brianna taylor thing are probably not going to be what you want them to be you know I, they have another article up today that's i think it's the third or fourth they've run in the last week or two basically talking to to uh, and a lot of minority, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of black uh, lawyers uh, who are saying, I don't know what criminal they're going to charge these guys with because, you know, it, yeah. they, they properly executed a bad policy. That, yeah. That's not criminal. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I saw the same article of the criminal law expert, and I think you're, 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 you're exactly right of trying to tamper things down of seeing where this it may go um, and you know I, I think you're going to see I and mean, you probably have had the discussion on this podcast before no knock warrants I know President Stivers and the Senate has already made uh, comments of where he intends to go with this uh, with no knock warrants as we get into the session in January and um, I think you're going to see us be fully behind that uh, legislation that he's looking to carry. Yeah, it, it'll just be interesting to see how accepting the people up in, up in Louisville are when. Yep. And and I'm I'm also interested to see if there's something else that can pop up on the federal end that's more of a, that's more from more of a civil rights angle rather than, you know, I I, just, I don't know as much about the, the law on that end as is, you know, the state level. But you know, I just, I just wonder if if maybe that's kind of a a, a backdoor way to appease some of the anger if there if there's something from the civil rights end that can be done federally. But one of the things we're waiting on right now, right, are the ballistics are being run by the FBI's crime lab. And I know that is one of the, the I don't know how you could possibly bring anything until that's back and that's pending still. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, Tom. I think that's one of the things that we're waiting to see, or they are, I should say we, because I'm not a part of the bureau anymore, nor am I a part of the legal circle. I'm not a lawyer. But I do think that's going to play heavily into uh, evidence and, and, and as we've you know, make our way through as a, as a state with this whole investigations, it portrays itself. All right. And some, some, uh, more local election news, Tom, uh, looks like you might not have to wait too long to have a new place for your feet to stick to the floor. If you got to get a beer, cause uh, two keys may not be gone forever. It may just be moving down the street. You know, the guys who, who own two keys, uh, a couple years ago bought posits from, uh, from, from our friend, Tom bear. And they they closed I think last year and it's kind of been sitting there. But now it, it kind of sounds like rumbling coming out of the bankruptcy court and some other things going on that they may reopen two keys down at the Pazos location. Oh my heart beats a flutter. 
<laughs> I mean, does anybody, of all the things, does anybody really care? Um, you know, thinking about the, the old two T's, like just the branded, like that, that structure itself is a big open space. I mean, that's, that's a real challenge um, for anybody right now, uh, restaurant, bar. Um, I, I know, you know, one of the things the local newspaper puts out a lot about is local restaurant openings and closings and reviews of restaurants and the, you know, the, the grades they get from the health department. And you know, it seems like every day you get on there, you see another series of closings. I just, I don't know how anybody can keep going with the restrictions that are um, out there right now. Yeah. I mean, you even see Matt Jones saying on Twitter, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. I understand why, why they, they, they clamp back down the restrictions. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do it. It's, it, I mean, you're going to see, it's going to be a, a long time before the restaurant industry gets back to where it needs to be. And you know, the, the bar industry, God knows when they're going to be able to recover. Well, yeah. yeah I saw where the local restaurant associations and other groups, it's, it's the same thing. I think you and I've talked a lot about Trey that, um, you know, whoever is in the room that are helping the Bashir administration make these decisions, it doesn't necessarily feel like the business community is well represented. And so this is another one where the restaurant association is really upset when they just made the, the reduction in the capacity again. Like who, who was there, um, you know, to have the opportunity just to present information on their behalf? And, and yeah, that, they, that kind they, of gets they, back they to the said, whole thing with the They said they had nobody. Process. Yeah, they said they had, no, yeah, they had nobody representing them. Yeah, and that's the whole point. So, like, yes, wear a mask, but you can't just mandate we wear a mask. I mean, you're not the emperor. We need to go through the process, allow for review, allow for that check that takes place with the legislature, and then ultimately the court system. That's, and this is just another of you know thirty of these that have happened now. So, Senator, if, if we if we were going to open up a uh, a a uh, legislative gambling service to bet on pieces of legislation that would come forth in 2021, what would you put the odds at on reforming the governor's emergency power? Like one to ten? One to 15. <laughs> uh, well, I, I would say, yeah, if, if I'm putting my chips on the table, I know where I'm placing the bet at on that one. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and going back real quickly on the restaurant issue, because I think that's, that's something that, that needs to be discussed is, you know, you've got the bar owners who are trying to do it right. They're trying to enforce, and, and I hate to see winners and losers of who's being chosen and picked to say, well, you are, are, are in violation, but it, we're going to have to be, because there's a bad actor out here, everyone's going to pay a price and a consequence because of this. And it's an, it's unfortunate. I mean, I hate to truly see what's happening uh, to, to so many areas. We talked about Louisville a while ago. I mean, you know, downtown Louisville, the restaurant scene will probably never recover for any time, you know, in, in foreseeable time ahead. I hate to say that, but it's, it's truly disheartening to see. Um, and so many nice independent restaurant ventures that have been making their way into Louisville, into Lexington, and probably other areas of the state. I mean, we were becoming a foodie state. We really were in some certain aspects of entrepreneurship and people taking the, you know, the, the risk uh, to, to open up on their own. Uh, and I, I truly hate it. It's, it's, it's going to be very frustrating to see going forward. Yeah, and, and you know, kind of, kind of like with the schools we talked about, there's the attempt to apply a one-size-fits-all is not fair to the owners. You know, I mean, if you got like an Applebee's that seats 200 people, that's way different than some of these restaurants that seat 30. Yep. That they, they can't stay open. There, there's just there's not a path to it to to to, to stay open. And then you, you've got you've got more people then hit the unemployment lines. 
you know, you've got, you've got business owners who are, you know, what I hate for them is, is I, it's all, it's, it'd almost be better if they just said, well, you can't, you can't be open because then at least the government's coming down on you and, and stopping you. And that puts you in a little bit different situation when it comes on employment insurance. But now you're closing by choice because you can't afford to do it. Well, now you're paying freight for all your employees on the unemployment insurance. It, 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 you know, the whole thing's a mess. And just, I hate, I hate the, the arbitrariness of so many of these rules. That's been, that's been my problem all along. People have gotten mad at me that, you know, you want to see people die? No, I want to see the rules enforced the, the same for everybody. There's no reason Kentucky Kingdom should be able to have a thousand people at it and an orchard can't have more than 10. Like, you know, that's just, it, it's, it's nonsensical. And I think it, I think truly, I don't think it's corruption. I don't think it's like, oh, we're paying off donors. I think it's, People who have an idea on how to do it safely have the right phone number to get a hold of one of the like six people that Andy Bashir actually listens to. And they're calling them and saying, hey, I think we can do this safely. And those people get to go. Whereas everybody else who doesn't have that, that right phone number or the right person to get a hold of, you know, they're, they're, they're tough out of luck because, yep. you know, they're, they're not, the administration is not talking to people to get information and build consensus on how to move forward. One of the establishments that, uh, was targeted in Governor Bashir's press conference where he said, you know, we're shutting down the bars. Look at this. Lexington was misbehaving. And they had two places that were targeted. One of those uh, I'm, I'm uh, friends with uh, the owner of, and she uh, did an interview with the Herald leader and, and gave an alternate factual story that's never really been brought fully to light about how the group that was kind of commingling together was a wedding party that had just come from a wedding and they had been around each other and that, you know, the photos were somewhat distorted in the way that it was done and that they'd worked with them all night. Even accepting, let's just say that all that is wrong. Let's say her narrative is complete balderdash and made up. Why wouldn't you just cite that restaurant? Like, or that bar, rather. Why wouldn't you just cite that one instead of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Yep. I, I don't know why we couldn't just more narrowly tailor it. I think it's, I think it's just like, it's, it's, it's not even good TV. I think it just comes, at least to me, it comes across as incredibly arrogant. I agree. I, and it, it, that, that is a great way to look at it is, you know, you've got some, like you said, that are, are, are trying to do it the right way, but to completely blanket everyone in the industry, I think is just absolutely wrong to do. Uh, I think it's unjust. Tom, I got a question for you. Going back to, uh, to, to two keys, if they move locations, will it be like Tally Ho? <laughs> which was not, I figured, once Tally Ho left the original, it was never the same. That was my personal take. Do you think Two Keys would be able to make it in a new location with Ice Pazos? Well, you know, the new location is almost a city block away from the old location. Yeah. Of course, I guess that's a little bit similar to Tally Ho. Oh, uh, but see, yeah, um, Tally Ho, you get, you got you to cross, you got to cross a whole bunch of traffic to get over from the, from the old Tally Ho to the new Tally Ho. Two Keys, you just got to walk down a block. You know, I, I, I think two keys, yeah, I per, personally, I think two keys would be a great location for a on or close to campus music hall to do when, you know, once things open up, open back up and you can have mm -hmm. things like that. You know, most of the music locations you, you, you got less than now are out on National Avenue or out, or out uh, the distillery district. It's, it's a big open space. That'd be a, a great place to put in a, put in a music club to have, have a lot of music like, uh, you know, Wednesday through, through Sunday afternoon. 
So I'm going to give you I'm a, sure you're just the type of venture capital that Benny Snell is looking for to come in and help him get that, that project <laughs> off the Hey, I actually know how to run a music club in Lexington. Nobody does it right. So not to get into the weeds on, on, on music booking, uh, they, have, they have things called through dates. Lexington is a perfect through date city because we're, we're at an intersection of 75 and 64. So what a through date is, is like I'm playing Indianapolis on uh, Thursday and playing Nashville on uh, on Saturday or, or playing, you know, uh, somewhere somewhere on, on Saturday and then playing somewhere else on Tuesday. And you can usually get the band. It's a band that would normally cost you twenty to $30,000 to book. You can usually get them for half price, if not less, because they're not, they're not, they're, they're going to go just overnight in the city, do a couple of radio hits, maybe do a, a live appearance at a, at a record shop or something. But if you can offer them 10K instead of 20K to stop off on the way, on the way down to where they're going or the way up to where they're going and, and play a show, they're going to play that show. And, it, you know, you just have to kind of give up the ghost on, I'm not going to have the cool hip club on Friday and Saturday nights because my big bands are going to be, the, the, the national bands are going to be playing Sunday, Monday, Wednesday. You, you can run a club and have some massive bands in and then supplement them with local access to try to bring along on, on, on the other nights. You can do that in Lexington pretty easily, I think. And nobody really really tries that here. I, if, if I was going to run a music club in Lexington, that's how I would how I'd book it. I'd, I'd focus on the through dates. So let me throw this out there real quick, not to yeah, take over yeah. the podcast, but hypothetical question. So we're talking about music halls. Where, in terms, let's, let's hypothetically, COVID has ended. We now can go back to large gatherings, concerts. Who would you want to see? Yeah. What would be the what would be the show or the opening act you'd want to see? Oh, hmm. uh, I mean, like vid show. Uh, you know, Kentucky's yeah. taking another hit, right? I mean, they were supposed to get the Rolling Stones again, weren't they? They were. And that's that's. I mean, I don't know. If there's anybody bigger, even at their age. I've got to see him, and that was as far as like big show. By far the best big show experience I've ever been to. Awesome. I was, I was Trey's going to come up with some really obscure, like, indie band. <laughs> that you oh, have I, to subscribe to a YouTube channel to get. Let's see what we got. I, I was looking forward to, I was looking forward to, uh, to the Railbird Festival this year. I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the lineup they had last year, but there was a lot of bands I wanted to go see this year. Uh, including, I think Trampled by Turtles was supposed to play, which is, which is one of my wife's favorite bands. We saw them open for the Ada Brothers in Chicago last year. Um, yeah, so like that that whole lineup was was going to be pretty solid this year, uh, even though I'm not a big festival guy. You know, I'm, I'm more of a more of a 600 to 1,000 seat either either uh, a theater like the Brown up in Louisville or or, or like yep. Manchester Music Hall. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a big uh, arena guy. Senator, who are you who are you pining for? You know what? I had tickets. Uh, it was going to be in May. It was for Chris Stapleton and George Strait. They were playing together. It was in Indiana. Uh, so that knocked that out. But if I'm going for a small venue trade, probably OAR. Uh, they're one of my favorite yeah. bands that I've seen quite a bit. So uh, two different types there, but that, those are probably the, the ones I would look more forward to the most. They were uh, it, was a, uh, it was a crazy game of poker. That's exactly right. Oh, OAR was – they were one of the first bands signed to Dave Matthews' record label when he started his own, his own label. I think his, the first two bands he signed were them and another band who – I kind of grew up with in Richmond, Virginia, who played the same venues as Dave, as Dave back in the day, called Agents of Good Roots. And uh, the, the first two he signed were those were those two. And then he actually signed David Gray right after that to his little late but sub-level that he operated. Uh, yeah, but OARs, uh, they're fun. That's kind of that's kind of the era of, of 
East Coast music that I grew up in, kind of the, yep. the Guster OAR, Pat McGee Band, Dave Matthews, Hootie and the Blowfish, that, all, nice. that, uh, yep. all that stuff. All right, well, I think that's a good good, good spot to get us out of here for the day. Uh, we will be back with a pod, another podcast on Thursday, I think, uh, unless – I've got two two of the lines in the water, but if they don't if they don't uh, pan out, then uh, Tom will have the, the Candace Bergen of, of the Kentucky Office Big League Podcast. Uh, Stephanie Steitzer back on with us again to to check in and uh, and uh, tell us how how uh, everything's going over her neck of the woods. Uh, but uh, we appreciate you being with us as always. You can get us anywhere you stream podcasts. If you get us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give us a review. And we'll be back with you on Thursday with another Kentucky Politics Week.